Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 5 of the Cards on the Table MMA podcast. We are coming off of an awful card, UFC Fight Night 164 in Moscow, Russia. It turned out to be an absolute stinker. Um, so let's just get through this as fast as we can. We'll start from the bottom. Really, this whole card was the bottom, but we'll start from the bottom of the card. Uh, the first fight, which I talked about on the podcast at length, was Douglas Silva de Andrade versus Henan Barrao. And Barrao looked pretty shit once again. His opponent, de Andrade, looked jacked as hell. Like, he looked like a... People were calling him a mini TRT tour, which I agree with completely. But his strength and his punching speed and all that did not... Was not proportional. He just threw these comically slow overhand rights. Um, his hooks were comically slow, and he they both gassed really hard. Varel also got super bloodied up. I don't know if that's just because he had so many fights, and that after a certain point, the scar tissue just builds up. But yeah, just got super bloody. Got a gnarly cut in the second round. Dendrod by far landed the better strikes. Varel didn't look completely out of his element, but he still looked like the worst fighter. Dendrod, he... Barrow was doing a nice job of landing some uppercuts. Or, sorry, Barrow was doing a nice job. He got some double legs, but he was not able to do anything with it. Uh, it got stand it stood up a few times. Dandrade started timing the uppercut with the takedown in the third round, which then Barrow didn't really have any answers. Dandrade hit him, hit him with a huge elbow, but they both look exhausted. Dandrade seemed too tired to go for the finish. Barrow was clearly rocked and retreating. And Dandrod just walked him down. And he wins by unanimous decision. That might have also been part of it. His, he knew he did enough to win just looking at their faces. And one judge gave the last round a 10 8 to him. The other ones were 30 27. Yeah, pretty sad for Burrow. I would not be that surprised if he gets cut off this. As far as I know, he hasn't been cut yet. But this was a pretty disappointing performance against a not top 15 old bantamweight. But yeah, don't be surprised if he gets cut. He might get one more fight. Just give him one last chance. But either way, I would not be surprised. Next fight, you had Warley Alves versus Randy Brown. This was a welterweight fight, I believe. Brown looked pretty good on the ground. Alves had his back with a body triangle and wasn't able to get this choke. And I wanted to bring up this fight because I think guys... Kevin Lee does this too, and I think it's why he wasn't able to beat Ally Quinta twice because guys are getting so good at defending the rear naked choke unless you're someone like Damian Maya it's probably worth it just to ride the back you know don't go for the choke it's better just to do what Habib does or a lot of the AKA guys do as well where you kind of sit on their legs and you don't get the hooks and you just ride it and you look for mat returns or takedowns which is kind of like the the war of attrition right where it's you're wearing them out because they constantly have to get up from your mat returns and takedowns instead of they can just chill and it sucks to have a guy on your back especially with the body triangle but as long as you go two on one and you know what you're doing and you're just patient and you don't panic then you should be okay and that's what brown did and he eventually gets a triangle choke in the second round always good to see a good old triangle choke you don't see him as much as he used to francisco trinaldo versus bobby green i talked about this one a little bit as well some pretty fun scrambles in the first round of the fight. Trinaldo kept doing this thing where he would 
lift green and then go for a takedown, but would always end up on bottom. It happened two or three times and just, I don't know, he should have just dropped it, but he didn't. Stand up was fairly even. Interesting, Trinaldo gets the unanimous decision. I thought it was a pretty close fight, but Green did land 50 significant strikes, and Trinaldo only landed 31. Well, Those total strikes, but significant strikes were about the same ratio. So either I was I slightly favor Green on this one, but again, it's not as a super important fight, so it's not the biggest deal either. Um, next fight you had Ricardo Hamosh versus Luis Eduardo. Garagori, interesting names. It was a pretty exciting fight compared to the rest of the card. Uh, Hamosh looks really good. He spins the back off of a jab, backpacks him, and they go to the ground. And this just completely contradicts what I said earlier uh, about the rear naked choke. I still stand by that, though. This is a pretty rare thing to see nowadays. Again, unless you are one of these elite jujitsu guys like Damian Maya. And Hamosh is a good jujitsu guy. So if you know what you're doing and you're able to secure the chokes in perhaps unorthodox ways, then go for it. But if you're going against someone like Ally Quinta who is good enough on the ground and good enough to defend, then I say just look for takedowns or see put yourself in a more advantageous position because so many times they get in these positions and just spin into the guard and then now you're on bottom. Either way, by far one of the the weirdest fights I've seen in quite some time. You had Sergio Moraes versus James Kraus. Such a strange fight. The first few minutes, Moraes looks pretty good, gets a takedown, doesn't do anything with it, and he gets swept eventually, but he gets a takedown. And then they stand back up about two minutes into the fight, and he looks either hurt or just completely gassed and stays that way for the rest of the fight. He's extremely passive. He's getting his ass kicked and is showing zero urgency. In the third round, he's just turning his back and running. There was a point where Maurice went down for some reason, like he got pushed or dropped or something, and Cross wants him to stand up, but he has like, he like holds the ankles for a second while he's standing and then lets them go. Maurice like starfishes on the ground, like hands and legs down on the ground at his side. It's just so strange to see. And it was just so strange. He looked completely out of it. And then he eventually gets knocked out in the third round of what looked like not that hard of a punch, but I think he just wanted out of there. I have a theory that he wanted to grapple because he kept looking for takedowns and would look to clinch when he was being active in the fight. Kept looking for takedowns. But my theory on that is he just didn't want to stand and jog around, which is what he was doing otherwise. And he's he's now on a three-fight win streak. Don't be surprised if he gets cut. He was somehow in a three-fight win streak before that which I don't know how you lose to him you just gotta survive two rounds and god yeah I don't know we're just gonna move on from this fight this fight was awful James Cross looked good but he didn't have much of a competition so whatever we're over it uh now we're moving on to the main card the fight people were most excited about and I was also most excited about Charles Oliveira versus Jared Gordon Oliver just showing he needs better competition. He should not be fighting lightweights at Jared Gordon's level. He gets his sixth win decisively. Uh, Jared Gordon lands a few decent punches, was very aggressive to start, and then after that just looked very uncomfortable. Oliveira 
I believe, yeah, first round KO. And yeah, he's exciting, man. He's fun to watch. He always he always brings it. He's now in a six fight win streak. Uh, since his loss to Paul Felder, which, again, a loss that has aged very well. None of those fights have got out of the second round. They have all been first or second round finishes, which is insane. Of course, his competition isn't the best, though the consensus that I agree with seems to be that he deserves a top 15 opponent, and there's even a pretty good argument for him facing the top 10. He'll be maybe ranked 12, 11. I think him versus Barbosa would be a very, very fun fight. Or you could do him versus Ally Quinta. Ally Quinta does not deserve another top 10 opponent. And I think that's a fight that Oliveira can definitely win. Uh, but it should also be a pretty entertaining fight. Al can bring it. He's tough. He can take punishment. So yeah, Oliveira by round one KO. Probably the most exciting thing that happened on the card. Uh, the main card was just absolutely terrible. So the next fight we'll talk about was number 14 ranked Shogun Hua versus Paul Craig. So I don't know if I mentioned this, but Paul Craig was actually a short notice replacement. I can't remember who the replacement was. But yeah, it was a very strange fight. Paul Craig looked really good on the feet. Almost landed a wheel kick with piecing him up on the put piecing Shogun up on the feet. Shogun's chin is still really good. He ate some pretty heavy shots. Paul Craig doesn't have the best stand-up, but eating a light heavyweight shot is no small feat. Even though Craig was doing so well on the feet, he kept getting the, trying to get the fight to the ground, even though I think if he tried getting staying on the feet and just keeping it there, he probably could have got the TKO, or at least won two rounds definitively and got the decision. Uh, my theory is, though, he either gassed himself out because he was flurrying, throwing a lot of crazy techniques in the first round, throwing a lot of kicks, high kicks as well. Or the other thing was he was just very uncomfortable on the feet. And that's one thing that's really common with grapplers is even if they're winning on the feet, they will still look for the takedown just because just cause that's where they're most comfortable. You know, you can see this against uh, guys like Damian Maya, even if they are winning on the feet because of the threat of the takedown, or maybe they're just the better striker, they will still want to go to the ground because it's safer there. Things are a little bit slower. You're more experienced there. You don't get in the face as hard. Um, Shogun survives. Uh, Craig, like I said, shows no urgency at all in the third round, around, in a fight that was probably one round apiece. And the lack of urgency... He pays the price for it. It's a split draw, which means that one judge scores it for Shogun, one for Craig, and one a draw. And I think this is a pretty fair score card, all three of them. I think there's an argument for all three of them. Craig definitely won the first round, and then there's an argument for the second round going either way, and the third round was definitely Shogun. So the draw most likely gave it a 10-8 for Craig, and then 10-9, 10-9 for Shogun. And I think that's a fair scorecard. I mean, it was a borderline 10-8, so there's an argument for either way. And then our main event was uh, number 6-ranked Jan Blakovic versus number 8 at middle-ranked ranked Jacare Souza. And this fight was absolutely terrible. <sighs> the crowd at one point... You know how at concerts people like wave their phone flashlights in the air? People were doing that during the fight, and the, the crowd as a whole, Brazilian cards tend to be pretty hostile, and usually it's, I find it annoying and distracting, but honestly, I agree, 
I think it was very justified during this card. This card was just so boring. There's so little that happened. I'm going over the highlights. I had to look over my notes about three times to remind myself what happened during this card. Because I think I just blocked it out. I just don't want to think about it. But hey, I'm doing it for you guys. Um, Jan definitively wins, in my opinion. It was a win by split decision. I think it should have been by unanimous decision, to be honest with you. He outlands Jacare 2-1 in total strikes and 3.5-1 in significant strikes. Jacare shows no urgency. Jan, with great takedown defense, was won the fights in the clinch, which is where a lot of it was. This fight, a, lot, a large percent of it was a very similar pattern where Jan would land more distance strikes. Jacare would try to throw a jab or telegraph an overhand right and just punch air. And then eventually would throw overhand right into the clinch. They'd clinch for a minute or two. And then just repeat, 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 repeat. Jacare goes 0-5 on takedowns and never really got close to one. I don't even think he ever really had the hands clasped behind him at some point. At one point or another. Yeah, like I said, he would go overhand right into the clinch. And Jan outstruck him 4-1 to one in the clinch. And this shows that Jacare really did not have an answer anywhere. Um, what I mean by that is, on the feet, Jacare got outstruck big time in the clinch. He got outstruck big time, wasn't able to take it to the ground, so Jan just fought the perfect fight, really. And Jacare showed, he looked pretty big, actually. He looked bigger than I thought he would be. And Jacare was getting picked apart, looked to slow down quite a bit. And I think this is on Jacare, because... Blachowicz, which is apparently how you say it, I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce Polish, but he, I forget exactly when it was, it was either the second or third round, his foot started blowing up pretty substantially, to the point where it looked like it was inhibiting his movement quite a bit, so I'm letting him off the hook a little bit for not showing more urgency, and I also, he was winning the fight, so if you're losing the fight, it's on you to be more, to show the urgency to win. You know, if you want to cruise to a victory, that's fine. It's boring, but you earned that right by winning a round or two or three in a five-round fight. Jan appears to wobble Jacare in the fifth. I don't know if it was Jacare being exhausted, uh, but he doesn't pursue it. And either he was tired, injured, or knew he had the win, or maybe it was all three. Like I said, I'm willing to let him off the hook a little bit more than that. Um, about the foot injury... The Brazilian Athletic Commission said Jan could be suspended for up to 180 days, half a year for the foot injury. But Jan posted a few days after saying, oh no, I'm fine. And he was like, hit a video of him dancing. So I don't know. I don't really know. He's probably fine. And as far as who's next for him, I don't really know. I just want to move on from this card. You could argue Corey Anderson. Um, Jacques Ray can fight Rockhold or Weidman, um, or you could just do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu seminars and he'll be fine. Um, I also had a thought that you could feed any of the middleweights to Johnny Walker, if you want to give him a name, because I think Walker probably beats all of them. And yeah, that's about it for this card. Again, absolutely terrible card. If you didn't watch it, don't. <laughs> um, yeah, this fight, this this whole card was just... Not very great.
so let's move on to the news. Um, we actually have a fair amount of news this week. Um, so we'll start... We just talked about the middleweights, so we'll get on with them. Luke Rockhold actually says he's content with not fighting right now. He, he doesn't want to completely sco- close the door on a return, but he just doesn't have a desire to fight right now, and I think that's fair, and at least he's being honest with not doing this whole bullshit MMA retirement thing. It's such a sports cliche, like you retire, but then you come back, and you're bigger when you come back. Um, but it's good. I think it's good. He's slowed down considerably. I've seen, I think Luke Thomas came up with this theory, or at least popularized it, where he relied a lot on his athleticism for his striking defense. Um, but as he's accumulated injuries, because all these AKA guys grind the hell out of themselves, even though Luke Rockhold isn't actually at AKA anymore, he still <laughs> suffered the damage of training there for a long time. But as his athleticism decreases with these injuries, he is unable to rely on his athleticism so much for striking defense, which puts himself in danger, especially with the kicks he throws. He's not able to move as much afterwards. We might see a similar thing with Stephen Thompson as well, who, speaking of Stephen Thompson, he will not need hand surgery, uh, according to him. He broke both of his hands at UFC 244. Apparently, I watched a video of him. He was breaking down some technique. I can't remember which one. But he will not need hand surgery and should be back in early 2020, which is great because he's one of our boys. He's one of the guys we love to watch fight. And then another retirement. Ben Askren says he needs a hip replacement. So big yikes there. That really sucks. And he's going to retire from MMA, which is probably for the best. Um, He had a good UFC run, obviously not record-wise, but he was still very, very entertaining and added a lot to the UFC. And a lot of people saying the UFC lost out, trading Mighty Mouse for Ben Askren. So for those who aren't familiar, that was the trade. Ben Askren was currently was fighting at 1FC a year or two ago. Demetrius Johnson had just lost to Henry Cejudo in the UFC flyweight division. So the UFC said, okay, you give us Ben Askren, we'll give you Demetrius Johnson. And the trade definitely worked because all of Askren fights, Askren's fights were really entertaining, even a little bit controversial. You know, if you go over his UFC run, you have the Robbie Lawler controversial submission stoppage, even though, I don't know, I think there's a little bit, that is a little bit on Robbie Lawler where he drops his hand to the mat. Um, I know some people, I think some of it definitely is on Herbadine for stopping it early. But again, you can't drop your hand when you're in the middle of a choke. But anyway, so you had that fight, which Askren got the shit beat out of him for a minute, and then came back and won. Um, and then he had he got knocked out in five seconds with the flying knee from Jorge Masvidal, and now he just got choked out by Damien Maia a few weeks ago. And he did sustain quite a bit of damage in that one. He had quite a bit of head strikes. I mean, again, his striking defense is, let's get you to the ground. Um, but if you think about it, without Ben Askren, without the Demetrius Johnson trade, the BMF title, while cringy, generated a ton of publicity. Hell, you got The Rock, the biggest actor in Hollywood involved. So, And that generated a ton of pay-per-view buys and everything. You had a non-title fight headline, which means you can put three title fights on the next UFC card. So definitely worth it. The UFC made way more money in the three fights Ben Askren was there. And as a result of those three 
fight Ben Askren was there than they ever would have if they kept Mighty Mouse around. Mighty Mouse, it's a sad reality, but he was one. He was not super marketable. Flyway is super exciting, but like people just like watching big guys swing. You know, people want to watch Nate Diaz versus Ben Askren or Nate Diaz versus um Jorge Masvidal way more than they want to watch Henry Cejudo versus Demetrius Johnson. That's just that's just the reality of things. I think Ben Askren, he definitely has a lot going for him. Again, he can be a wrestling coach. I don't know. Hip replacements are always kind of iffy as far as how well they take and how limited your movement is. But he can always be a wrestling coach or he can be a UFC commentator or commentate for any of the promotions he's fought at before. He's fought, I mean, he's he's got, done a grand tour. He's fought at 1FC, Bellator, UFC, and a few probably I'm assuming a few other regional promotions or he could comment to commentate wrestling again he's got a great voice he's smart he's really intelligent he's kind of like Chael Sonnen where he's obviously less less provocative but he's still really entertaining he's witty I think putting him and Chael Sonnen could be interesting together but yeah I think Ben Askren it's good he's retiring he's had he's run his course he came out of retirement to fight in the UFC as well I believe so he made his money he got his fame, and now hopefully he can ride the coattails of it. Um, I don't remember if I mentioned this last week, but Frankie Edber is set to make his bantamweight debut against Corey Sanhagen on January 5th in North Carolina. This is co under JDS versus Curtis Blades, so last week we had um, Volkov versus, versus Greg Hardy as a replacement for JDS, so JDS will now be fighting against Curtis Blades. And... Those are really the only two good fights on the card so far, but it's just a fight night, so I expect them to add one more interesting fight and then just move on. Yeah, we'll talk about that fight more when they get there, but of course, Frankie Edgar is like probably about an average size bantamweight, maybe even a little bit smaller than average, and Corey Sanhagen is pretty big, so it's going to be same old for Frankie Edgar. We'll see how that goes. And then our last bit of news today is Ross Pearson got knocked up by a Rolling Thunder KO. Ross Pearson, former featherweight and lightweight, I believe, finished his UFC career at lightweight, and gets KO'd by a Rolling Thunder in, re- in the regional promotion MTK MMA, which is a UK promotion, I believe, by fighter Davey Golon. And the kick, the kick was so wild and so out of nowhere. It was in the third round. <laughs> one of the announcers, there's like a few seconds of silence, and then one of them just goes, oh shit, after it lands. So funny. And... Yeah, I just had to bring this up because it was crazy, absolutely insane what happened. Yeah, so to be honest, I didn't watch the rest of the fight. <laughs> it was in the third round, and this is a regional promotion, so I'm sure it wasn't the best quality, but crazy. It's, it's a little bit of a spoiler for the show, but this will definitely be on my year-end knockout of the, uh, knockouts of the year list. So, as you well know, I mentioned this last week, there is no card next week so what we're doing instead is previewing a hypothetical super fight that so many people wanted that never happened and that fight is anderson silva versus george saint pierre this is a fight that would have been probably the biggest selling ufc pay-per-view of all time if it happened george saint pierre huge draw anderson silva pretty big draw and so before we get into 
what this fight would be like, or what I think it would be like if it happened, we're going to talk about why it didn't happen. So if this fight were to happen in real life, it would have happened sometime after UFC 154, which was November 17th, 2002, where GSP unified his welterweight title with a win over interim champ Carlos Condit. So yeah, I'm just giving you guys a little bit of context here. And right after this, pretty decisive win by GSP over Carlos Condit. Speculation immediately begins about a super fight between the welterweight and middleweight champion. Obviously, Anderson Silva was the middleweight champion of the time, and GSP was the welterweight champion of the time. Both fighters were on ridiculous streaks. Um, Silva was on a 16-fight UFC win streak and a 17-fight win streak overall. In that time, he was on just an absolute tear. He had 14 title defenses, plus an additional win where his opponent missed weight, seven knockout of the night bonuses, three fight of the night bonuses, and two submission of the night bonuses. So just crazy. That's a, such a crazy streak. And three of his opponents did pop for steroids in the meantime, but Silva would obviously also pop two years later. But anyway, GSP was also on a 10-fight win streak, including eight straight title fight wins, plus an interim win, amassing three fight of the night bonuses, one knockout, and one submission of the night bonus. So both guys were just so dominant in their weight classes. So this fight, again, there was speculation about it right away. Um, Anderson Silva had fought on the last UFC pay-per-view, which was UFC 153, and started pushing for it immediately. He really wanted the fight. Dana admits the fight would be great to have in Dallas, Brazil, or especially Montreal. I think that would be the best option, which we'll talk about later. And even brought up Vegas as well, you know, a little bit of payback. And some betting sites even put out some odds. Silva was the favorite at one, minus 185, and GSP was the slight underdog at minus 150. I found this a little bit surprising, but I think once we get into the technical aspects, I think that will become a little bit more clear. I was expecting the odds to be a little bit closer. So again, Silva was pushing for the fight with his UFC 153 knockout win. He fought Stephen Bonner there. Silva's camp was requesting the fight to be at 177 to 182 pounds. So again, this fight, both guys wanted it at a catchweight. Dana insisted, he re repeatedly insisted this, that the fight would not be for a title. Um, it would be, even if it wasn't at a catchweight, even if it was at 185 or 170, it would not be for a title. It would just be just a regular fight. Which makes a little bit of sense because, well, <laughs> it makes sense, A, because it's if someone loses their belt, then if Silva loses to GSP, it's going to devalue his belt. Because if he still has it, but he lost to a guy from the champion in a lower weight class, that's not very impressive. If Silva loses, then it's just diminished. It tarnishes his brand a little bit because now he's got an extra loss on his record. This would be his third loss. He'd avenged both his losses to Matt Sarah and Matt Hughes by this point. Um, Dana also says, interesting point here, that he doesn't think it would be reasonable for Silva to defend two belts simultaneously, assuming he went down to 170. And oh, how times have changed since then. And yeah, apparently five years ago, champions, or this was about seven years ago, champions couldn't defend two belts at the same time, but now they can. A little bit strange. Anyway, you can guess why that changed. And... The final reason I'll give for why this fight didn't happen is because of this man called Johnny Hendricks. Johnny Hendricks threw a big wrench in the works. He defeated 
in the co-main event of UFC 154, which is the one, the card where Silva won, or sorry, where GSP beat Carlos Condit, Johnny Hendricks throws a big wrench in the works by defeating Mark Martin Campman by round one knockout in just 40 seconds of the first round. Hendricks was the clear number one contender for the welterweight title. Um, he was on a five-fight win streak with three knockout of the night bonuses. All those were first-round knockouts in the same stretch. He also this included a 12-second knockout over John Fitch and a decision over Josh Koscheck. So, both guys who had fought GSP, both guys who were at the top of the div division in tough competition. He just starched them, <laughs> and he would later go on to reinforce his case for immediate title shot with a win over Carlos Condit five months later at UFC 158. And this was not a very close fight. This was fight, another fight of the night bonus. So this is his fourth post-fight bonus in six fights. The clear number one contender. So as you can see, they were waiting. You know, GSP never really committed to the title fight. His camp, Farasahabi did point out that Silva has fought at 168 pounds before. So he should drop down. And also the pre precedent is a little bit that in boxing, for example, if the two guys are fighting from different weight classes, it's on the bigger guy to cut more weight, which, again, I think is fair. Um, GSP cited the size difference a lot, though I do think that is a little bit overstated, but either way. So let's get into, if this fight did happen, what are some stylistic components that might play a factor in here? So we'll start with the stances. So Silva is a little bit... It, or he prefers to fight in southpaw, which should help with defending takedowns. Silva does not have the best takedown defense, which will be a huge factor. Um, this is, again, especially against someone with a good double leg. So you saw that against, in both Chael Sonnen fights, really. Chael Sonnen was really one of the worst-case matchups. And then you had someone like Chris Weidman, who didn't get a double leg on Silva, but the threat is always there. Silva relies a ton on his footwork, but if you can catch him a square and you get the takedown, then he gets very complacent off his back, sort of old-school jujitsu guard where you just kind of look for submissions, which don't really work as well in MMA. And GSP also has very good submission defense. He, hasn't been, he hadn't been submitted in his career aside from the armbar that Matt Hughes got on him in the first fight, which was kind of a fluke, GSP has stated that like he's worked on it a lot since then. That wouldn't happen again. Um, as far as, So that's Silva, bad takedown defense, but he's southpaw, so the hips won't be aligned, which makes it a little bit easier in defending takedowns. So as far as wrestling, advantage, definitely GSP. You also... So our next point is GSP also has a tendency to put a lot of weight behind his jab, and he reaches with his jab a lot. So he'll go in a square stance, and then when he jabs, he'll often go into a more bladed stance, so he'll put his lead foot forward. What that means is he's not able to shift his weight around as easily, and also means kind of negates his right hand because his stance is so bladed, and he'll have to reach so far to land his right hand. Again, GSP is an orthodox fighter, so we're talking left jab, and then he would have to have a long right straight in order to land it. Again, most of GSP's game is jab, and faint jab takedown or jab takedown. He'll alternate between a body jab and a jab to the head. The jab, Silva has been prone to body shots, so the jab could be interesting there. However, Silva is also 
very good at handing, landing body shots, and GSP has shown himself to be prone to body kicks. So that kind of negates itself. But if Silva is able to time the jab, where GSP is a little bit out of position, where he's reaching, where he's putting a lot of weight on his front foot, and isn't able to shift around as quickly, if Silva can time that, that's very, that would be a huge advantage because Silva's just there out in the open. So Silva, overall, just has the far better striking arsenal, though the threat of the takedown could potentially minimize his kicks. I still think he would throw them once, once he got comfortable. Um, if he can get the timing of the body kick down, as I mentioned a few seconds ago, that would be huge, especially because they are in open stances. Again, GSP usually orthodox, Silva mostly southpaw. That means the body kick is there, and I think that would be an important thing for Silva. But again, he can't fall in love with it because GSP can get the takedown off of it. Our next point is both fighters are fairly strong in the clinch, but I think you have to give the advantage to Silva. He's a lot more active in the clinch. GSP is more of a fighter who will strike to set up a takedown, whereas Silva just wants to hit you with those brutal knees and elbows, which won him the title against Rich Franklin, I believe. And GSP, again, has to be aware of the knees. Silva's also good at landing strikes and controlling the distance as they break. That's always so dangerous against Anderson Silva. And Silva is very confident in his distance control and footwork. He relies on that a lot for his defense instead of a traditional high guard. Um, similar to Stephen Thompson, someone like that, where their hands are almost at their hips, and they rely a lot on um, upper body movement and footwork to keep them out of range. And the flip side of the coin is this can put them into dangerous situations if they misread the situation. And as we would later come to find out in a fight that hasn't happened yet, which is Chris Weidman 1, <laughs> which hasn't happened yet, uh, GSP can catch him if Silva gets overconfident and he's in range when he thinks he's out of range because then he's not moving his head as much and he can get caught clean again in the fight that hasn't happened yet where that would happen and as far as who leads who leads who's leading the dance as far as who's pressuring I would expect Silva to lead for the first few minutes of the fight to try and get GSP uncomfortable and really establish the distance because he tends to do that he tends to come out very aggressive and then he tends to relax a little bit and get into his counter-striking flow because he does prefer to counter-strike. And GSP does prefer to lead a little bit. So I think after the first few minutes, if it calms down, he then the fight will start to shift where GSP is advancing and Silva is looking to counter off of it. And then GSP can duck under the counters and get the takedown. I think that's how it would start to shape up. And another thing is... I think that if Anderson Silva did get taken down, and I think he would get taken down, if the fight wasn't just like a fluke one-round knockout. Not necessarily a fluke. Silva has shown it's not a fluke, but I think that, that would be unlikely that it's a round one knockout win for either guy. But if Silva gets taken down and he gets back up and there's, say, 30 seconds left, he'll do this thing where he'll be super aggressive and throw a ton of feints ton of looks and just be super aggressive for the last minute of the fight to try and kind of win the round back on the judges' scorecards. I think that would definitely happen if he went down. So let's get into how I think this fight would go. So here we go. Again, Silva, 17-fight win streak, 16 UFC wins, 14 straight title defenses, GSP, 10-fight win streak, Eight straight title defenses. 
both guys the far the biggest the, the biggest most dominant fighters in the sport two of the biggest draws in the sport and here we go let's get into the details so the date is march 16th 2013 we're in montreal quebec canada at ufc 158 just a few other fights on the card you have a young tj dillashaw knocking out isaiah tamora rick story getting a first round knockout over late notice replacement quinn mulhern darren elkins defeats antonio carvalho blah 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 and on the undercard you have johnny Hendricks defeating carlos condo by unanimous decision and of course we have our main event anderson silva versus george st pierre at a catchweight at 175 pounds so we get into the fight round one they exchange a few jabs there's a lot of feints neither fighter really wants to commit a lot gsp does get a nice double leg takedown off a silva jab and gets him to the ground and secures it Silva does a very nice job of controlling the posture, however. GSP isn't able to land a lot, but does manage to pass to half guard. Lands a little bit of ground and pound in the last few seconds as Silva tries to create some space and stand up. So the first run goes to GSP, 10-9. Round 2. They exchange long-range shots in the open. Silva starts to find his range a little bit and land a few leg kicks. GSP shoots, but it gets stuffed, and they go against the cage in the clinch. Silva reverses the position. And lands some good knees in the clinch. GSP tries to break and narrowly misses an elbow on the break. GSP lands a, or Silva lands a few more straight punches until GSP ducks under and lands another takedown to finish out the round. That round goes to Silva 10-9. GSP feints the takedown in round three and lands a big right hand over the top. Silva, Silva clinches and holds it to recover. He begins to land some nice elbows as he gets his wits about him back and starts to land more straight punches as they separate and GSP head movement is being, beginning to slow down. GSP shoots another takedown to relieve the pressure, but it's stuffed, and Silva lands some more clinch strikes. So this round goes 10-9 Silva. Round 4, Silva opens up with a body kick that lands hard. GSP tries his jab, but Silva counters it as he starts getting his timing and distance down even further. He lands the body kick a few more times, but goes to the well a few many times, and Silva catches one and takes him down. He manages to pass the half guard, but doesn't land as much ground and pound. This round 10-9 GSP. And then our fifth and final round, Silva starts taunting and running around the ring, popping GSP with his jab and landing some hard leg kicks. GSP stays calm behind his jab and lands some nice shots in return. Both fighters seem to have slowed considerably. Silva with a little bit less movement. GSP with a little bit less head movement, which, make, which is making Silva a little bit more accurate and snapping GSP's head back. GSP tries another takedown to secure the fight but Silva gets them to the clinch and cuts GSP hard with a nice hard elbow. They separate, and Silva continues to taunt, dancing around the ring, landing more straight punches, but GSP is able to avoid most of the powerful shots. GSP tries to secure a takedown at the end of the fight, but Silva avoids it with his footwork, and the final round goes 10-9 Silva. So I think a fight between these guys would be two judges scoring at 48-47 Silva and 149-46 towards Silva. So... An overall impression of the fight, if I were to review it, I think that GSP's threat of the takedown helped minimize a lot of the kicks that Silva likes to throw, but ultimately the timing and the distance control by Silva would win the fight, and I think he's also very good at controlling people's posture when he does get taken down, so GSP would maybe get takedowns, but wouldn't necessarily be able to get a lot off of them. 
but yeah, this fight, I really wish it would have happened. And uh, I really don't think there would be a finish. I think both guys are durable enough to stay in the fight. I do think GSP would slow down a little bit with the body kicks and with going for takedowns but getting them stuffed. Silva would slow down just because he would constantly have to defend the takedown and he would have to rely on a lot on movement because, again, the kicks wouldn't be there. But yeah, ultimately, I think I think I agree with the odds. At first, I didn't agree. I thought the odds should, should have been a lot closer, but the more I did stylistic research, I think that Silva... Silva we didn't talk too much about the size difference, but that would be a factor in defending the takedowns. He would be stronger. Silva in the cage is probably about 205. GSP is about 195, so 10 pounds weight difference is not super substantial, especially as you increase in weights. But the size obviously helps quite significantly. But yeah, ultimately, I think Silva does get the win. I think it's a close fight. I think it's entertaining. I think both guys get to show a little bit of their advantage, but ultimately I think Silva does get the victory by decision. So yeah guys, I think that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. We're going to do something a little bit similar to this next week again, because there is no card next weekend, we're not even going to be able to review a card, so it'll probably be a little bit of a a slower show. Um, Again, I'm not super sure what I'm going to do yet, but we'll figure it out. And let me know what you guys thought of this, let me me know if you guys want to see more more preview to the fight, more detailed analysis of what the fight might have been, more detailed history, more context to the fight, or more commentary on how I think the fight would go. And yeah, I think that's going to do it, guys. Um, I'll see you next Thursday. I hope you guys have a great day. I hope you guys have a great weekend. I hope this helped quench your thirst for MMA content because there really is not a lot going on in the next few weeks. We just got to hold on for UFC 245. That is a great card. We've got three title fights to preview. And I'm going to start working on that now because that is, like I said, a great card. We've got two great UFC events. And yeah, I will see you guys soon. Have a great day and peace out.